All right, well, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to be very tied to my notes today because one misstep and I'm going to be in big trouble. So uh, here we go. We've been traveling through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, you'll remember from previous Bible studies where we've talked about how Paul had started this church years before. He spends about a year and a half there. And this is a very, very Greek church. It's nothing like Jerusalem. It's a very pagan. And, uh, and uh, so Paul's there for a year and a half, and then he hands the church off to another pastor, and then that pastor takes it. The church goes on for several years, and the people within the congregation uh, begin to sense that something's not right. Things, things aren't the way that they used to be. So the leadership of the church gathers together, and they write down a list of, del- of questions, and they send a delegation to find Paul the Apostle and to ask him to answer some questions that they have. So the delegation finds Paul, and uh, Paul gets the, uh, the uh, update as to what's going on in the church, and then he sits down to, to write back to the church, which is what we call 1 Corinthians. So Paul deals, first of all, with issues that he's heard about within the church, and then he begins to answer their questions. We're in the part of the book where Paul is answering their questions. And so we've looked at a number of, of, uh, of, of issues and subjects as we've traveled through, and today begins a new section of this book, and it's very important. I'm gonna, I want you to write something down right up front, because this section of the book, from chapter 10 all the way through chapter 14, deals with, and I want you to write this down, discusses what goes on in church services. Very, very specific, what takes place in the church service. So when we come to the second part of chapter 11, it's going to deal with com- communion. It's the only part and a place in the Bible where communion is discussed as far as any instructions from chapters 12, chapters 12 through 14. It's going to deal with the issue of spiritual gifts and their usage within the church service, and we'll talk about that. But today, we're going to talk about one of the most controversial subjects, uh, probably um, one of the, I think one of the most controversial subjects in the Bible, but also one of the most misunderstood subjects in the Bible, and hopefully we can navigate through that today. Now, as we get into this, we need to, to remember uh, something that we've talked about many times before, is that Paul is writing to a particular church in a particular culture. Uh, what he's writing to this church, he might write something very, very different to another church. So uh, in different cultures, people do things very, very differently. For instance, you, you know if you've been around the church for any length of time that, that there are different churches and they do different things that are particular to their culture. For instance, I grew up in a church where the pastor would say, he'd say, let us stand for the reading of God's word. And you had to say it in that voice because nobody would take you seriously. You said, let's all stand for the reading of God's word. So you had to say it in that very, very solemn voice. I won't share that at the second service. But the idea, the, the idea is we would all stand, we'd hold our Bibles, and then we would, he would read that. And then we would sit down. So if you were in that church and you said, you know, I don't, that would be their act of reverence to the Lord. But if you were to say, well, I, I don't need to stand to reverence the Lord, and you decided in that congregation to just sit down during that time, people would look at you and they'd say, that's, that's kind of odd that you wouldn't share in that reverence with us because in that church culture, that's what we do. In our church culture, we sit down and we read and we study. Now, if every time I began to read a passage, somebody stood up holding their Bible, we'd say, now that's odd in this particular culture. Does that make sense? Okay. 
So um, today, Paul is going to begin, we're going to look at the first 16 verses today, and Paul is going to begin with this comment, verse 1, and I put verse 1 on your outline. So you can read it from yours, but I I like it from the, the NIV here today. So he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And uh, the, the one thing that nobody ever doubted was Paul's commitment to Christ and his commitment to the gospel. And uh, he, was, he was fully in in good times, he was fully in in bad times when it was convenient and uh, when it wasn't convenient. So that's the opening statement, and we'll come back to that several times. Verse 2, he says, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the, now in my translation it says traditions, how many of your Bibles say Traditions. Okay, that's good. And how uh, other Bibles will say teachings. How many of your Bibles say teachings? Okay. And then uh, how many of your Bibles have the word ordinances? Ordinances, okay. So now I know what translation of the Bible you're reading from. So this is a word that can be translated as teachings, ordinances, or... um, or traditions. And I tend to take the view that it's the, the word teachings is, is the best. So let me just read that again. So I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions. I would, I would say teachings just as I delivered them to you, just as I delivered them to you. So Paul, and, and I like the word teachings because I think it, it, it uh, makes it more clear as to, to what's going on. So when Paul came to this very, very pagan town in their culture, he brought the gospel. And the gospel was very different than any other philosophy or teaching in, that, in the world at that time. The, the gospel was very, very freeing. It was freeing to women, it was freeing to children, and it was very, very uh, freeing even to those who were slaves in that community. And the reason being is that Paul taught that when you become a believer, we all become one in Christ. And as a matter of fact, in other places, there from the, Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, he says this, there in outline, He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so he says, you've held to the teachings that I've given you, and this is one of the teachings that they held to, that we are now one in Christ. Well, um, be that as it may, you come to verse 3, and in verse 3 it says, but I want you to understand. Now, um, some of your Bibles, if you have the NIV translation, it will say now. How many of your Bibles say now? Now, this is one of those important little tidbits. This is the NIV life application commentary. It comes right from the NIV. And here, when it comes to that word, I, I said in my translation, but your translation says now. This is important. Here, it just says now in verse three should probably be translated as but. And so just to let you know that, so you might want to write, even their, their own commentary will say that, you might want to write the word but there on the outside of your, uh, in your margin. Paul says, but I want you to understand, apparently there's something that, that they had lost sight of, there, there's something that, that, that they didn't understand, even though they embraced the teaching that we are all one in Christ. So verse three, he says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Let me read that again, and I want you to underline the word head every time we come to it. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So although he would say we are equal, we are one in Christ, there are some distinctions between us. There's some distinctions. 
And just for clarity, I want to uh, share it from another translation just to, to bring out what he's talking about here. So in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3 on your outline, it says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the husband, underline husband, is the head of his wife, underline that. And God is the head of Christ. So first of all, the word woman here refers to a wife, not just the woman. It doesn't mean that men are in charge of women. It's just speaking specifically of the marriage relationship. In this case, when he uses the word head here, he's speaking, and uh, you want to write this down, he's referring to authority. So God the Father is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the man or the husband, and the husband there in the family is the head of the, of the, the family or, or specifically the wife. So here, what that means, um, you know, as, as he begins to unfold this, that the, the husband is the head in his family, he's the authority in, in the family. Now, uh, just to let you know what that means, in my family, what that means as the head of the household is that I always... Um, when there's a decision to be made, I always get the final word. I always get to say the last word. Now, after 20 years, the last word has always been, yes, dear, but I do get to say that. So I, I do get to say that. So it's been, she does let me do that. So, I, I, so as God is the head of Christ, as the authority of Christ, here, right now, number two, the Trinity is a model for marriage. The Trinity is a model for marriage. So, so how does Jesus respond to his father's leadership? Well, there in your outline very quickly, he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because he says, I do not seek my own will, and I've underlined that, but the will of him who sent me. I and my father are one. We're together in this. And then he says, he who has seen me has seen the father. In essence, Jesus is saying, yes, we're one, but, but he's in charge. My father is in charge. We're one, but he's in charge. There was a time where the father being in charge was very, very difficult for Jesus. There in your outline, it says, Father, if you're willing to remove this cup from me, uh, yet not my own, but yours be done. So, so we, we see that. That was a very, very difficult time for him. So in, in verse 3, we see that, that Christ is the head of, of every man, and uh, here the husband, uh, this referring to the husband, now here's what this means, and I want you to write this down. This means that Jesus is the highest authority in the home. Jesus is the highest authority in the home. And I, and I want you to remember that Paul opens this section by saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. So if the husband comes home and he says to the wife, you know, you got to submit, you got to submit to me, and uh, I want to look at pornography or something like that, and you just got to submit. Well, no, no, because you see, for the Christian, the highest authority in the home is always Jesus. Jesus is the highest authority in the home. And, and uh, let me just toss this out. Guys, if you've ever had to say to your wife, um, you know, you need to submit to me. Um, here's why you've had to say that, Be- because you've probably been a real jerk. And, and, and I, it's, it's true, that's what we find. You, if you've, you've probably been a real jerk to your wife. and, and uh, so Now, sometimes uh, a lady will say, but you know, I have a hard time trusting men and, and, or submitting to my husband. I've been hurt in the past and all that. Remember that Paul is writing to Christians, and he's speaking here of a Christian marriage, a Christian marriage. So Jesus submitted 
to his father, and that then becomes the example. So go ahead and write this down. Since Jesus is the highest authority, the husband is to be in agreement with Jesus. You see, as Jesus is always in agreement with his, fa- with his father, the idea is the next step is that the husband is to be always in agreement with Jesus. So if you are in agreement with Jesus in your home, you're going to be a lot easier to follow than somebody who's not. So go ahead and then write this down. Like the Trinity, men and women are equal in importance, but different in performance. So we'll talk about that. So when you think about it, equal in importance, but different in performance. And so he uses the Trinity here, God the Father, God the Son, as the example, and he carries that on into marriage. So you have God the Father who's on the throne, and then you have Jesus who comes to the earth as a man and steps in our place and, and pays the price, which is, uh, although they are all God, they have very, very different roles there. Then you have the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who steps into us and, and indwells us. So that it's, it's, it's the equal in importance, but different in, in performance. So that first part sets up everything that Paul wants to talk about. So now we come to verse 4. By the way, you haven't run out screaming yet, so that's a good sign. Verse 4, he says, Now every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. What we're going to find here is that because they had embraced the idea of one in Christ, they, they thought that that meant that there was no difference in the genders. So now he says, if a man, again, he's going to be speaking about within the church service, begins to pray or prophesy covering his head, uh, that's going to be a disgrace or dishonoring to his head. So, so the concern here is going to be a blurring of the genders. So we're, we're um, now, um, um, the gender differences here uh, seem to be blurred. It's as if uh, women were, were going to find we're trying to be more like men, and men were apparently trying to be more, more like, like women. So in that particular culture, when he says, verse 4, um, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. In that culture, a modest woman would wear a scarf on her head. And we'll talk about that in a few moments. But if a man wore a scarf on his head in that culture, it would mean that he's trying to look like a woman. That's, that's the idea. And uh, this would be a disgrace to his head. But in our text here, the word head means authority. So here's what this means. Uh, write this down here. His head means authority or Jesus. It would be disgraceful for a man to show up acting like a woman in the church service. Um, that would be a disgrace to his head. That would be a disgrace to Jesus. So far, so good? Now, why this is so interesting, and Wearsby brings this out, is that if Paul were writing this to the church in Jerusalem, he would write it very different. Because in Jerusalem, when men prayed as an act of reverence, they covered their heads. Which is why when you see Jewish men, um, and they'll wear the yarmulke, that's an act of reverence, they cover their head. So, But Paul's not writing to the church in Jerusalem, he's writing to a very different culture. In the culture in Jerusalem, it would mean one thing, but in this particular culture, it means something very, very different. So far, so good? Okay. So they know what Paul is talking about. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Verse 5, it says, but every woman who has her head uncovered, now underline uncovered, and then I want you to underline while praying or prophesying, underline that, disgraces her 
head, underline the word head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Well, we need to talk about that. First of all, he's talking about when a woman prays or prophesies. I'm going to tell you something that many of you have never heard before. When the woman would pray or prophesy, prophesying is, we're talking about the context of the church service, this would be a woman who is addressing the entire congregation. She's speaking to the entire congregation from, from essentially the, the front. And so that, that it's, prophesying is not something that you do privately. It's something that you, you share with, with uh, other people or a group. So in that day, in, in Corinth, women very commonly spoke in church. And uh, a lot of people miss that point. So you don't, you don't, you don't prophesy quietly. Also, in our culture, we tend to view prophecy as, um, I come from a more charismatic background, and we used to have like the, the prophet of the month come in, and the prophet would always say something like, I see for you, you're going to do this, and this is what God's plan, and on and on, like an assembly line. We, we, we don't do a lot of that here. But um, in the Bible, we're going to find that in the New Testament, in this section, Paul is going to define what prophecy is, which is what a woman would be doing in the church service. And here's what he says, and we'll find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He says, but someone prophesying is, and I want you to underline, speaking to who? People. And here's what they're speaking, edifying, encouraging, and comforting them. We're going to talk about this uh, a whole lot more. But speaking to people. So in that, in that church, in the church in Corinth, uh, there was no issue with a woman standing up and speaking, prophesying, giving encouragement, comfort, and uh, edification. So when it says edifying, that means to build you up. When I open the scriptures and we go through and I share with you what the Bible says, that builds you up in your faith. When uh, it, it says encouraging, so it, to encourage you to keep going you know, and comforting, you're going through a hard time. So it's very common for a woman to stand up as part of the service and share that way. So that's not the issue. The issue is how do you do that when you're standing there in front of the congregation? Does that make sense? How many of you never heard that before? Good, 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 good. Okay. But does it make sense? Okay. So, uh, so when a woman addressed the congregation praying or, or prophesying in that very, very sexual culture, um, she had to cover her head. Now, if she didn't cover her head, uh, it, it says there in verse 5, let me read it, it says, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. And so the next thing on your outline, I want you to write down, it dishonors her head. That's what the NIV says. It Mine says disgraces her head. And her head means her husband. You want to write that down. And we went through that, how the, the head of Christ is, is the father, Jesus is the head of the husband. So write this down. Modest women covered their heads with a scarf. So in, in that culture, when a, and, and, uh, when a woman wanted to show that she was pure and she was modest, she would cover her head with a scarf. It was her way of saying, I am modest, I'm pure. And also her hair is a way of saying, this is all for my husband, not for everybody. That was important in that culture. Our culture is a little, little bit differently, and we'll talk about that. But then Paul says in verse 5, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. That's her husband. For she is one and the same with the woman whose head is shaved. 
For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover, let her, cover her head. So this is important. You want to write this down. A temple prostitute would shave her head. One of the things that we've talked about over the course of our study through 1 Corinthians is that there was a temple there in Corinth. It was the temple of Aphrodite. And Aphrodite had a thousand temple prostitutes, and they would go out every night. They would sell themselves. You knew it was a temple prostitute because she had her head shaved. And uh, some people, you know, there's lots of conjecture why they did that, but you knew when you saw a woman with her head shaved that she was a temple prostitute. So Paul here is saying, look, if you're not going to dress modestly, then just go ahead and dress like a stripper, in essence is what he's saying. He's being a little bit sarcastic, he's a little sarcastic. So Paul is not trying to enforce a first century dress code, but what he is doing, and this would be our understanding, is that Paul is saying dress culturally appropriate to the situation. You want to write that down. Dress culturally appropriate to the situation. Again, he would have written very, very differently had he been writing to the church in Jerusalem because they had some different, different culture, uh, cultural uh, things that they did. So here's how we might apply this to our church. Now again, we're talking about somebody standing in front of the congregation praying or prophesying. Prophesying, speaking to people is the idea. So let's say we're here on, on Sunday morning and... Um, a woman comes up here, and uh, it's, it's, she's going to be addressing the con- congregation. So she walks up here. We all know she's married, but she happens to show up in a very, very tight-fitting, very, very short black miniskirt, cut in such a way that we get to see completely or almost completely everything that the good Lord and her plastic surgeon has endowed her with. <laughs> you with me? So, so she looks this way. We know she's married. She doesn't have a wedding ring on. You know, we would look on and we would say, that's odd as you are addressing the congregation in this way. That would be inappropriate to address the congregation in this way. Make sense? So, so that's probably the, the best way. So, and Paul says, and if you do that, if she were to come up here in that way and address the congregation that way, she would be disgracing or dishonoring her head. It would be dishonoring her husband because she's showing the rest of us, you know, again, what's, what's all there. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sweating here. So anyways, <laughs> so write this down. So here's what we're going to find. Uh, again, this is speaking about a woman speaking to the congregation, and you don't want to lose sight of that. But write this down, that modesty just comes with maturity. Modesty comes with maturity. And, and, and uh, this is very different than when a woman comes through the doors into the church. There, there's, there's not that standard. When somebody comes through the doors of the church, we're just glad they're here. However they show up is fine. That, that's one thing. So we're going to let the Lord do his work. But if somebody is to come up here in front and address the congregation, there needs to be a level of of appropriateness. So here's what we would say. We would say, ladies, when you come to church, dress attractively, but dress appropriately. Uh, But again, this is not speaking about ladies coming to church. This is speaking about somebody who is prophesying or praying publicly in the church service in front of the congregation. So we don't want to lose sight of that. Verse 7, he says, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. The the woman is the glory of man. 
So, so once again, I want you to write this down. A man shouldn't have his head covered. He's writing to Corinth. And in that culture, if a man wore a scarf, under, write that down, everyone would think he's trying to look like a woman. That, that would be the idea. And, uh, the, you know, they, uh, Caitlyn Jenner comes to mind for some reason. But, <laughs> but, but he's saying here, he's saying, men, you know, you're the, you're the glory and the image of God. The idea is that you represent God. And, uh, and so as you're the glory of God, it's a very, very interesting word there, that word glory. I'm going to put the uh, definition there, but I want you to underline a few things. The word glory there, the word is doxa in the original language where we get the word doxology. But the word doxa primarily denotes, and I want you to underline, an opinion, estimation, repute, good opinion, and then it says praise, honor, glory. And then I want you to also underline an appearance commanding respect, an appearance commanding respect, magnificence, excellence, manifestation of glory. So, so here's what he's saying. Guys, you are the image and glory of, of God. And so what that means when you use the, the definitions here, opinion, estimation, repute, good opinion, appearance commanding respect. And here, here's what he's saying, that, and write this down. People form opinions of our authority by our behavior, by our behavior. So men, you carry the reputation of God and people make assessments about who God is based upon the way that you conduct yourself as you conduct yourself with dignity. And then it goes on to say, but the woman is the glory of the husband or the wife is the glory of the husband. The idea is that, is that people make assumptions about your husband based upon the way that you conduct yourself with dignity or, or you don't. So... Verse 7, again, just I want to highlight one thing very quickly. He says, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, whereas the woman is the glory of the man. When it says to the man that he's the image and the glory of God, we represent God. And so the idea when Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, here's one of the things that we learn is is that um, Jesus takes responsibility for his own. He provides, he loves unconditionally, he's there for. So you are the glory, the image of God. And so that is you have the reputation of God and so you have to act like God. As Paul said, as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Just as Jesus is always in harmony with his father, we need to be in harmony with Jesus as we, as we lead our families. Verse eight, he goes on to say, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. We all know the story. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. A man was hopeless, and and God said he needs somebody to come alongside and fix him. Verse 10, it says, Therefore, the woman ought to have a, and in my Bible, it says the word symbol. How many of your Bibles have the word symbol? Is it leaning to the right? Is it italicized? You might want to make a note of that because that just tells you that that word is not in the original manuscript. That's something that, that, that's been added in. So literally it says, therefore the woman ought to have authority on her head. And then it says, because of the angels, because of the ang- angels. So I, I love this passage, verse 9, it says, for indeed the man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Let's just close in prayer right there. <laughs> this, this, and we, we know the story. The, the, God looked at Adam and said, you know, the, he needs some help. So 
So you have a verse like this, and in Scripture you always balance Scripture with Scripture. So on the one hand, ladies, you were made to come alongside of the man. That, that's, that's how it, it was set up. Now, men, it's interesting what the Bible says about us. For instance, and you'll get this a number of different places, but here's a verse that we're familiar with with your pen and hand. It says, a man who has just married must not be sent to war or be given any other duty. He should be free to stay home for a year to, underline this, to make his new wife, what's that word? Happy. happy. Yeah, the ladies are like, happy. Did you hear that? Can I get an amen? <laughs> amen, amen. So, so guys, here's what you need to know. Uh, she was created for you, and God has given you a very specific duty. And that is your job now is to make her happy. As a matter of fact, that's part of your spiritual growth. You cannot grow spiritually if you're married if you're not making your wife happy. And when Peter talks about this, Peter says, look, if, if you're not doing that, then, then God's not even hearing your prayers. So your job is to make her happy. Anything? Anything? <laughs> so so here, here's how this works. Here's how this works in my house. Um, you know, in the Bible it says, somewhere I'm sure, That if mama ain't happy, how's it go? Ain't nobody happy. Yeah, it's, it's in there. <laughs> we miss it in the English translation. But you know what? what I, I want Cheryl to be happy. And so in, in my house, it always means whatever Cheryl wants, Cheryl gets. And um, so, so, I mean, it's big things, it's little things. And, and uh, like she'll come in and she'll say, she'll say, look, Look at these nails. Look how bad they are. And look at my toes. And I've learned to say, well, we, we can't have that. We, you, you probably need to get to the place where they do that and get that fixed because that's just not going to go around here. So off she goes. Now, when she does that, I notice that she is happy. She's happy. But ladies, I got to tell you, I, I couldn't care less. I was single for, you know, I got married when I was 35. And, uh, and so I hung out with a lot of single guys. Not one time hanging out with a bunch of single guys did we ever look over at a woman and say, hey, get a load of the toes on that one. <laughs> that is not what we said. <laughs> but we've learned if it makes you happy... <laughs> We want you to be happy. <laughs> okay. Then verse 10, there's this very, very interesting, the very last line of verse 10 that says, because of the angels. Do you see that? Because of the angels. So it, it, and let, me, let me just, uh, for man does not originate for the woman, verse nine, 8, uh, from the man, indeed, the man was not created for the woman's sake, or the woman, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore, a woman ought to have authority, literally, on her head because of the angels. And you go, what in the world is that talking about? Um, the Bible doesn't say too much about angels, but it gives you these tidbits, these tidbits. And one of the things that we find in the Bible is that angels are super sensitive that things be done according to God's order. Remember, it was the angels of God who saw a third of the angels removed 
because a third of the angels decided to change God's order and God took it very, very seriously. We know the story, right? And so we've seen that. But also we notice something else. When angels would come into the presence of God, it it talks about how they came in with this incredible reverence. As a matter of fact, there in the outline in uh, Isaiah, it says the seraphim, which is a, a kind of angel, story for another day. Seraphim stood above him, this is coming in the presence of God, each having six wings, with two he underlined covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called out to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So one of the things that we notice about angels is that when they come into God's presence, there's this incredible reverence that they have. And, and one of the things that we notice is that, um, that, that they, they would cover themselves up in order to be uh, appropriate, to, in order to be appropriate. So it's something that they take very, very serious. So if a woman were to come and to address the church and is dressed inappropriately, very, very different than the angels who felt like they wanted to be very appropriate in the presence of God, they would look on and they would say that's very dishonoring or irreverent to God that you would stand and address the people of God dressed like a temple prostitute, in essence. Make sense? Okay. So verse 11 and 12, it says, however, now you're going to have this phrase, in the Lord, and some of you are going to have it at the end of the sentence, some of it's going to be at the front, but verse 11, it says, in the Lord, uh, and you want to underline it, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from man, and we know the original story, so also man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from 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 uh, from God, so Paul says. So on the one hand, men, um, the woman might have been made for the man, might have come from the man. But since the first woman came from man, every man has come from women. And so Paul sees this here, or God. Write this down. God sees man and women uh, as a, as a unit. Man and wife as a as a unit. And God designed us so that we need each other. So write this down. Here, here's the idea that, that, that Paul is trying to convey. God designed us as completers, not competers. We complete each other. We don't compete. You know, Cheryl in our family is very maternal. And you, know, you know, we have 12 kids. We have 11 at home. But she's, she's maternal. Last night, one of the twins, they're now three, one of the twins was, uh, I think it's uh, allergy pollen or something. But you know, her thing is, well, the, the baby's got to sleep with us. So I've got to be with the baby all night. I'm like, throw the baby in its bed. You know, I'm more on the paternal side. You know, they're alive and safe because of her. They have fun and adventure in their life because of me. I, I, love, I love seeing her being the mom in this family. And she loves seeing me be the dad in this family. But we're very different. She's very, very maternal. And I'm, I'm very, you know, not, not always maternal. But, but together, we make a great team. We don't see each other as competition, but, but something that completes one another. And together we make a more complete picture of God to our children. So we're a family unit. Verse 13, so then Paul says, So judge for yourself if it is proper for a woman to pray uh, to God. And then 
some of your Bibles will say with her head, and is that italicized to the, to the side? That means that those words are not in the original. So literally it says, judge for yourselves if it is proper for a, a woman to pray to God uncovered. Now remember, this is speaking to the church. He's already said praying or prophesying. The context is the church service. So, um, so um, Paul is not here trying to enforce a 7th century dress code or a 1st century dress code, but he's just simply advocating appropriateness within the church service. By the way, skip down to um, verse 15, and uh, here he doesn't, uh, verse 15 it just says, but if a woman has long hair, it is, her, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And so that's, that's the, the, the covering that God has given. And so, but in that culture, uh, women would, would wear a, scar- a scarf. So, um, so um, verse 14 and 15, he says, does not even nature, and I want you to underline that word nature because we have to come back to that. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering. And so he says, doesn't even nature describe this? And so when we look at that, that word nature there on your outline, if we define it, it'll help, help us to understand. The word there, nature, I won't try to pronounce it, but it means growth by germination or expansion, by implication, underline natural production, lineal descent, or mankind. Underline that, mankind, and you can also be translated as nature. So here when he says, doesn't nature say, he's not saying, you know, look at the lions, you got the, 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 the boy lion and the girl lion. That's not what he's talking about. Here, as he speaks, he's speaking about in every culture that you go to, there's a clear differentiation between the male and the female. So no matter what culture it is, they're, they're, you can always tell who the guys are and, and who the women are. In most cultures, then and now, women would wear longer hair, and that would be a way that you would see who they, they are, and the men didn't. In Corinth, in that particular culture, if a man were to wear long hair, and again, one of the things we've talked about is that there, there in Corinth, as we were a few chapters back, it talked about the, the gay community there, and it talked about the transsexual community there in Corinth. You know, it was pretty much like, like our day, but when a man wore long hair, he was trying to look like a woman, and that's the idea that he's conveying here. In our culture, uh, there are different hairstyles. And so we might write this a little bit differently to this culture than he would write it to the, the culture in Corinth. Because in our culture, the, if a man has long hair, it doesn't mean that he's necessarily trying to look like a woman. And I will say that when I started the church, I had the best mullet. And when it comes back, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. So, and if you accuse me of trying to look like a woman, then we will have issues. So the idea, Paul says, so, you know, I want you to know that there's some real issues between, or not or real distinctions between a male and a female. And so you, you're not trying to hold one down, but you're trying to celebrate. You want to celebrate those things. But God put those distinctions there by design. So the idea is don't blur that. So the uh, as men would come to the church, is don't, don't look like you're trying to become a woman. And women, when you come to church, make sure that you're not trying to look like a temple prostitute or having your head you know, cut in a certain way that, that uh, you're trying to convey that you're a man. So far so good? Okay, and then Paul, Paul then uh, concludes this passage by saying in verse 16, 
he says, but if anyone is inclined to be contentious, um, we, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. This is one of those things that's universal. In churches, uh, men act like men, women look like women. There's to be an appropriate, whatever that culture says is appropriate. With that, I'm, I'm going to close in prayer, and then I'm going to run off the back of the stage. Let's pray, shall we? Did you find that interesting at least? Good, good, good. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, and, and Lord, thank you so much that, uh, you know, that you've, you've, uh, you've designed us a certain way, and it's, it's, a, it's a blessing. It's not a curse. And Lord, we pray that, um, that we would always be appropriate in all things before you, and help us to, as we talked about, the, being the glory that we would be a great representation so that your reputation would be increased as people look on on our lives, as we live out our families, and as, that we, as we reflect you in all things. Keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.